For my mum's 80th birthday, uh, she surprised us all. I'm not sure if I gave you 20 questions, you would come close to guessing what she chose as a celebration for her 80th birthday. Of all the things she could have wanted for her birthday, my mum decided she wanted to go to Anfield. And not on an Anfield stadium tour, as Sam and I had done a few years before, but to celebrate her 80th birthday by watching a Liverpool game. Here's the evidence, Steve, if you could put the first one up. That's my mum, my brother, uh, Sam, our son, and our eldest nephew, Alex, at Aintree before the game. The next one, that's uh, my mum and Sam with their newly acquired scars before the game. And the final one is mum sitting in the stands waiting for the game to start. Sitting between my mum and my son, both standing with their scarves above their heads, belting out, you'll never walk alone, was a truly unforgettable experience. The fervour in the stadium was striking. It's hard to resist being carried along with it. What was even better was that we thumped Arsenal 4-0 in one of Mohamed Salah's first games for the club. The noise when he scored was unbelievable. The delight, even the ecstasy of the fans, was extraordinary. Why do I mention this? <clears throat> Simply because ecstatic experiences don't necessarily mean anything. Ecstatic experiences don't necessarily mean anything. And that's my first point this morning. Experience isn't definitive on its own. The word translated spiritual gifts in verse 1 is actually a word that means something like spiritual matters. It's not the usual word for spiritual gifts. It means something like spirit manifestations. So when Paul writes in verse 1 that he doesn't want us to be uninformed, he's insisting that we shouldn't be uninformed about manifestations of the spirit. So he's not meaning to give us new information. Rather, he's telling the Corinthians to reflect upon what they already know. Ecstasy, passionate spiritual experience is not definitive. It's not conclusive on its own. I think that's the meaning of verses 2 and 3. But I will be honest that commentators have wrestled with these verses and have come up with so many different interpretations. This is mine. Verse 2. You know that you were, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to dumb idols. Paul uses two similar verbs to emphasize the point they were influenced and led astray. He's reminding them that their experiences in pagan religions, perhaps provoked by the consumption of substances that led to altered states of consciousness, those experiences led them to have ecstatic experiences, even though the idols were nothing, that they were dumb. Sometimes for some of them, before they came to Christ, this led, even, led them even to believe that it was right to curse Jesus. That statement, he's saying, could never, never have been one that the presence of the Spirit of God would have caused them to utter. Even if some of them were perhaps saying this to escape martyrdom for their faith in Jesus, Paul insists never would the Spirit inspire such words. 
So ecstatic experience, a little bit like Anfield when Salah scored. Ecstatic experience, particularly in other religions, perhaps provoked by the demonic, perhaps by taking substances to alter consciousness, Paul says, doesn't necessarily mean anything or tell us anything. The fact that an experience was incredibly powerful doesn't mean it was therefore more truthful. So he's warning them that the Holy Spirit isn't present in all ecstatic experience. The intensity of an ecstatic experience doesn't make it more truthful. What matters in those experiences, what matters in the encounters with the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is whether Jesus is glorified or not. As Paul concludes in the second half of verse 3, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This isn't a test of reading. It's not merely a verbal expression. It's not enough to say it. I think it's rather about where they're heading. Are our experiences of the Spirit, our ecstatic encounters with God, are they leading to the Lord being glorified in our lives or not? Do they lead to transformed character? Do they lead to greater fruitfulness in mission and ministry? The Holy Spirit comes to exalt Jesus. When we encounter him, that means our experiences should be leading to transformation. Is that genuinely happening, is what Paul is saying. At the height of the memorable um, Toronto blessing in the middle 90s, when many people were being overwhelmed by the presence of God, the then Bishop of London was asked what he thought of it. And he, he memorably said, it's not them falling over I'm concerned about. It's what they're like when they get up that matters to me. Have they been transformed? Have they genuinely been empowered? So we always need to be discerning about experience. We cannot allow experience to be an end in itself. Otherwise, we can be tempted to pursue experience rather than God. Pursue the means rather than the end. When the Holy Spirit moves powerfully, he's always about glorifying Jesus. He's always about blessing the body. He's always about making God's grace present and available. And if that's not happening, then we've got to ask discerning questions about ecstatic experiences. Spiritual experience isn't definitive on its own. But, second main point, we should expect to encounter God's power. We should expect to encounter God's power. There are different kinds of gifts, service, and working, Paul writes in verse 6, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God that's at work. Where God is at work by his Holy Spirit, we should expect, expect to encounter God. Yes, we have to be discerning about spiritual experience. Of course we do. But not having them at all isn't the answer. That's just a different way of being uninformed. Avoidance isn't better than obsession. There's nothing normal for a Christian to go through life not experiencing God's power. That's like trying to run a car without ever refueling. We should expect to encounter God's power. We should expect it because it's God's purpose. Paul is going to say in the next verse, verse 7, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So the everyone in verse 6 
in all of them and in everyone. It's the same God at work. So the everyone in verse 6 has to be everyone within the body of Christ. In all the ways in which God moves, through gifts, through ministries, through expressions of his power at work, God is at work throughout the body of Christ. So yes, we shouldn't allow spiritual experience to stand on its own. It always has to glorify Jesus. But no, that doesn't mean we should seek to do without it, seek to do without spiritual experience. Encountering God is precisely what Paul tells us to expect. Whether it's through gifts, through ministries, through his grace at work, in manifestations of his presence and power, we should expect to encounter God. That, to Paul, is usual. Anything other than that is out of the ordinary. Now, that might not be our experience. Might honestly not be what we want. But Paul is utterly clear here. We should expect God to be at work in all of these different ways. And in everyone, it is the same God at work. Truthfully, I guess Paul's normal might not be our normal. Let me illustrate this. Uh, What's a normal average temperature in July? Well, of course, it depends on where you live and depends on what you're used to. The normal average in Southampton for July is 21 degrees centigrade, though it doesn't always feel like that. But in John O'Groats, it's 16 degrees centigrade. And if you live in Saint-Tropez, it's 29 degrees centigrade, which is normal. The risk is we've got used to a cooler temperature within the church over many generations that we do not expect anything more than that. We think, therefore, that living in the cold of John O'Groats is normal. And the risk is we take our sense of what's normal and simply impose it on the scriptures and interpret them in the light of our experience. Because we got used to the cold, we assume that that's what it was like in the scriptures. It's like assuming that John O'Groats is normal for everyone, and trust me, it's not. When we were there in August, the temperature reached the dizzying heights of 14 degrees centigrade. I really, really hope that John O'Groats is not normal. Saint-Tropez might be a bit hot for me, but John O'Groats is definitely not normal. So if pa- it's not even the northernmost point in the country, by the way. I hope you knew that. I didn't. There's, it's something called Dunnett Head, about five miles away. It goes much further north. It's not even the most northeasterly point in the country. In fact, it's massively, massively overblown. So uh, it was a wasted day. So if powerful... Sorry. Normally, when you say something like that, you will discover that someone here is from John O'Groats. But I think I'm fairly safe. So if powerful movements of the Spirit are rare for us now and have been rare in our lives, we can tend to assume that they must have been rare in biblical times. We make our normal the normal. But that's not exegesis, not taking our bearings out of the text. That's eisegesis. We're reading our own experience into the text. Then rather allowing the text to shape us, we are shaping what the text can tell us, demanding it to be as dull and dreary as normal as a wet, blowy August day at John O'Groats, when perhaps, perhaps we should be looking for the temperature of Saint-Tropez. So we should expect God to move. We should expect God, we should expect to encounter God's power and grace. 
That's the third main point, expecting God to move. But if that's right, how should we expect it to happen? What might or should it look like? Well, Paul uses three words in our, in our text to describe how God works. In passing, and I just put this in brackets if this isn't interesting, this is the earliest Trinitarian formula ever written down. And the fact that it can be written so straightforwardly without needing to be qualified, without needing to be defended, tells us that the experience of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit referenced here was utterly taken for granted. Close brackets. The first in verse 4 is charismata. Charismata. There are different kinds of charismata, but the same spirit distributes them. This is often translated spiritual gifts, but I think it would be better translated grace gifts because the first part of the word is charis, the word for grace. So yes, the Holy Spirit distributes charismata, but what he is distributing in our midst is grace. The charismata are ways in which the Holy Spirit makes God's grace present and available to God's people. How? By distributing it throughout the body of Christ. So that that means we need a broader definition of grace. When Paul writes in Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, he's clearly not thinking there about saving grace. He's thinking about the grace given to him to enable him to minister the kingdom of God. So grace as unmerited favor isn't just about our being saved from our sins through the cross. Grace has also got to cover how God's presence and power come to his people, not just to save us, but also to bless and empower us, to correct and inspire us. That too is God's grace, God's unmerited favor coming to us. And that's what the charismata do. They make God's grace present and available. They bring it within reach. We should expect the Spirit to distribute, therefore, charismata to us. And also expect those grace gifts to come in lots of different guises. The stress both here and in Romans 12, 6 is upon the variety of ways in which God gives his grace to us. As 1 Peter 4.10 tells us, each one of you should use whatever grace you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. The network course that we sometimes use identifies no fewer than 23 different charismata. And one of the great things about that course at the end is, when I've done it in larger groups, you get everyone to stand and come to the front when they, when they claim a particular gift as their own as we work through the list. And then you realize that actually all of us are gifted in different ways. And you realize that the interdependence of the tapestry that God weaves in our midst by giving different grace, different grace gifts to all of us. In all these 23 ways, the Spirit makes God's grace present and available through giving the charismata to his people. The second in verse 5 is diaconium. It's from that word we get the word deacon. Probably means ministries or offices. These are given, Paul tells us, by the Lord. A title that Paul routinely applies to Jesus Another bit in brackets, a footnote if you like. 
That's the word that always translates Yahweh in, this, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So Paul is taking a word, uh, word for God and naming, and naming Jesus as the Lord. So Jesus, verse 5, is the one who gives ministries or offices to his church. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 names three, apostles, prophets, and teachers. There are other lists, but the point is that the Lord Jesus gives not just gifts, but offices to the church for its good. The Lord doesn't just uh, gift the church these offices, of course. He also calls people to fulfill them in our midst. And the third in verse 6 is energimaton. You can hear energy at the beginning of that word. But energy is too lukewarm a word for this. Mighty works would be better, works that only God can do. And there's an overtone of effectiveness. God's mighty works achieve the purpose for which they're sent. We're, calling up, we're talking about the breaking in of the miraculous. These ways of mighty working being attributed to God, attributed to the Father. And in all three of these ways of working, the giving of grace gifts, the calling of ministers, the outpouring of mighty deeds, in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God at work. Hear that Trinitarian form, formula again. It's one God, Holy, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So these are the ways in which our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interacts with and empowers the church. So we should be expecting God to move in these ways. So what does all this mean for us today? Well, first, let's be biblical about spirit manifestations. Let's be biblical about spiritual manifestations. It's, it's easy to read our experience back into the Bible, and then rather than it transforming us, we risk subtly subverting, undercutting what it's actually teaching us. Then it's not shaping us. We are shaping it. We may not have or want the gift of tongues as in a particular prayer language, though I wonder whether you've ever asked for it, but we cannot say that it's unbiblical. We may not have the gift of faith as in the capacity given in the moment to believe that what God has promised will happen as we pray, but we cannot say that it's unbiblical. We may not have the gift of prophecy, which in passing is clearly distinguished from teaching in Romans 12, 6, and 7, because some folk would now say that prophecy is, is under, the, under the teaching office, but we cannot say that it is not biblical. The Bible distinguishes them from one another. We may not practice them. We may not want to receive them, though they are God's prescription for the church, but we cannot honestly say that they are not biblical. Now, yes, sometimes they get misused. So let's learn to use them well. Let's make sure that they're genuinely bringing glory to Jesus, which is always the acid test that the Holy Spirit is really at work. But saying we'll never use them because they may get misused is like saying you'll, you'll never dance because you might twist an ankle or you'll never risk going on a date with someone because you might break up with them. This is God's intention to grow and bless the church through 23 different charismata. If we say we don't need them, which some do, if we say we don't want them, which is at least more honest, we're actually saying that we know better than God himself 
what the church needs to function well. Surely let's choose to be biblical about the manifestations of the Spirit. Surely let's choose to be biblical, not uninformed. Second, let's put into practice what God has shown us. Put into practice what God has shown us. Paul isn't giving them new information in verse 1. He's just asking them to act upon it. There's an element with some of the charismata that we're trying to recover stuff that's lost, trying to look at the pages of Scripture and ask God to help us step into what we see there. A couple of analogies I could give. I I started to become interested in in birdwatching in my teenage years. And it was astonishing what I started to see when I actually knew how to look. I remember the first time I saw a goldfinch through binoculars, and it it was astonishing. Uh, The first time I saw a kingfisher, well, it's like something has flown in from a Disney cartoon, because the back of a kingfisher is iridescent, um, kind of turquoise blue. They are astonishing birds to see. And you think, were were they there before I knew how to look for them? Similarly, with spiritual gifts, you might think, well, I've just not seen this. But maybe you've just not looked for it. Maybe you've not prayed for it. Maybe you've not sought to step into it. The first charismatic pioneers and the first Pentecostal pioneers were astonishing people because they looked at what they saw in the scriptures and said, I'm not seeing that. And rather than thinking, well, I'm not seeing that, therefore it never happened, they thought, I'm not seeing that, but I should. This is what the Lord wants to give to his people. Best analogy I can give is like walking in Snowdonia the summer after foot and mouth. Foot and mouth. The countryside had been closed for well over a year. And some of the paths that were on my map were simply no longer there on the ground. That meant having to force my way through overgrown gorse bushes at quite a number of points. I was in the right place. I had the right to walk in that direction. That was where my map was taking me, but still there was resistance to overcome. Still a path had to be forced, even when I had the right of way. In some of these grace giftings, in some of these offices or ministries, we will have to grow in them. And that means being willing to have a go. It means being willing to make mistakes, even being willing to force our path to re-establish a lost right of way. Being willing to step into something new, even at the age of 80, like my mum, choosing to go somewhere she'd never been. But to put this into practice and seek to keep doing so. John Wimber, who was one of the pioneers of the recovery of the healing ministry, um, used to tell the story of someone coming up to him in church and saying, well, I tried it and it didn't work. He said, okay, when you've tried it 200 times, we'll have a conversation. Sometimes we have to grow in this stuff. We have to grow in our trust in the Lord. We have to grow in our faith that, yes, this can happen. So let's put this into practice and keep doing so. In passing, the one way to guarantee no one ever uh, gets healed is not to pray for anyone. And perhaps dare to start again if we stumbled or if we've been cowed by the resistance we may encounter. And third, let's expect God to move. 
None of the statements in verses 4 to 6 are conditional. Paul isn't saying, if we do this, then God will. Paul is saying that God is working in these ways. Not that he might, but that he is. This is his heart towards us. This is his purpose that he's pursuing in and through us. So let's expect God to move. We've got the map, but the map is pointless unless we seek to follow it. We've got the map. I've got lots of maps of lots of places I would love to walk, but haven't yet made there. We have to step into it if the map is to become real for us. Let's expect to see grace gifts poured out on us and through us as the Spirit distributes them. Let's expect to see ministries being raised up as the Lord Jesus calls them forth. Let's look for God's mighty deeds to be renewed in and through us. For in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Let's be expectant. Let's be bold in asking for God to move as he has promised. Let's be bold in learning to walk with the Holy Spirit. It's not like that moment. I mean, it's still the case most of the time. It's not like that moment when you actually come to ask someone to marry you, but you have no idea what they're going to say. That's not a good moment. It's not a good moment for anyone. We are asking God for something he wants to do, something that he is doing. We're asking to become partners with him in taking this stuff forward. Let's be bold in rediscovering paths that are overgrown. Let's be courageous into stepping into everything he longs to give us. Let's expect God to move. Amen. Amen.